0: welcome to today's session nanotechnology moving research from the lab bench to the market shelf the panel discussion will examine the process by which nanoscience and technology research can be transferred from academic labs to the private sector and to identify best practices policies and other activities that can facilitate the commercial commercialization of research for the benefit of society and economic competitiveness. Today, we are joined by an expert panel. We have Dr. Pratik Roy, who is Group Product Manager for Nanoscience and Technology at Springer Nature, Dr. Michael Rickhouse, who is Group Leader at the University of Zurich, and Dr. Sharishwa Gawal, who is Senior Scientist at Cambridge Display Technology Limited, and Dr. Suze Kandu, the Head of Public Engagement at Digital Science. And now I'm going to hand over to Pratik, who is our host for today, who will introduce himself and the panelists.
1: All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Nano and Research App panel discussion. The big smile that you might see on my face this morning is not only because I'm passionate about this topic as moving research from the lab bench to the market shelf, but I'm also joined with the best in the world on nanotechnology and uh, science in general across academia, industry and publishing. So this morning, we are essentially taking an in-depth look at how we turn new knowledge and technologies created at our universities and colleges into products, companies and jobs. So I'm particularly excited about this topic because of my experience as a university researcher and then moving towards publishing and artificial intelligence and uh, just the general recognition of nanotechnology's international competitiveness and economic growth. Uh, which leads to a direct increase uh, depending on successful technology transfer from the lab to the marketplace. So to talk about all of these uh, different things, um, uh, we have our, our panelists who are from different uh, um, fields, uh, as I mentioned, academic, publishing, industry. So, but part of this also depends on uh, lock and timing and to some extent location. So I'm interested in hearing from today's panelists about best practices or policies that can improve the technology transfer process and the appropriate role for universities, industries, and maybe even publishers can play in supporting such efforts. So I hope to hear your thoughts um, on the role of networks, how we can improve collaboration between scientists, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, or how we can better track and quantify impact of both technology transfer activities and say research spending, Uh, Finally, I would also like to learn from the panelists uh, what impact the recession right now, um, the whole situation that we have around the world is having on the creation of uh, new startups, jobs perhaps, um, and how we can make sure that discoveries uh, turn into companies and jobs. So with that, uh, I pass it on to um, my panelists. And let me start with uh, the first person to my right on the screen, uh, Dr. Suze. Do. So, if you could just quickly introduce yourself and then we can move to the next person. Thank you.
2: Thanks Pratik. Hi everyone. Um- a pleasure to be joined by some amazing panelists here and by this incredible audience I'm Suze I'm a nano chemist I always say literally and professionally because I'm also a very tiny scientist that used to do tiny science um, until a year and a half ago uh, so I did my undergrad PhD um, and a bit of postdoc research at University College London um, and then I moved on to teach at the Department of Materials at Imperial and then the Department of Chemical Engineering down at the University of Surrey a year and a half ago, I jumped ship from academia. Um, partly because I was a little bit kind of frustrated by some of the archaic processes within academia, um, and because I had a massive crush on the company I now work for, which is Digital Science. Um, so they kind of just make stuff happen in a really positive way and try and make research the best it can be. Um, so as Head of Public Engagement, I kind of use the researcher know-how and um, the, the ties with the community that we have to see how we can kind of create products that can then help researchers and everyone at every stage of the research cycle.
1: Thank you, Suze.
3: Um, on to you, Michael. Sure. My name is Mike Derickhaus. I'm currently located at the University of Zurich. Um, I studied in Switzerland in Basel, did my bachelor's, master's, PhD there. Moved on. Well, in in between, I was in Boston uh, with Larry Scott for a while in uh, Boston College. That was kind of during my master's. So I was a bit like an adventure for me. I came back, finished my PhD in in Basel, then moved to Oxford for three years as a postdoc with Harry Anderson. So that was that was fun fun times. And since last uh, last summer, I started my own research group here at the University of Zurich. So basically, um, by training, I'd say I'm an organic chemist, but I have always been a materials chemist as well. so most of the research I've been doing was was always related to one way or another to to applications to molecular electronics, these sort of things. and even now we we kind of have that in our portfolio so we're trying to make new materials that um you know we, we're trying to use rational designs to, to design new materials that we can actually eventually use that does degradable electronics, things like that so the kind of in between, but we do mostly fundamental research. And my training and my up is that. Currently, I have a team of three, two women, which I'm really proud of. So my vote is very good, and I'm super happy. Um, it's actually amazing to bring all these people together in one in one place, and I think um, here in Zurich is an excellent environment for that sort of thing.
1: Thanks, Michael. Uh, all right, Dr. Zimstra? yeah Yeah.
4: Yeah, hi, my, my name is Przemysław Gawel, and uh, I did my undergrads in, in, in Poland uh, in chemistry and biotechnology. Then I, I moved to Switzerland, where I did my PhD in Zurich, and after that, uh, founded by Swiss National Science Agency, I met Michael Rickhouse, actually, together, we did a postdoc in Oxford. I was working during my PhD in Oxford. I was working on new materials, uh, carbon-rich materials, and uh, after my postdoc, uh, a bit less than a year ago, I moved to industry, uh, where I work now in Cambridge Display Technology. And this, where we all, a bunch of scientists here, really good scientists, work. We are working on the broad topic of digital transformation. So we are trying to. To develop technologies important for the uh, development of of, of of future electronics in general, and uh, this is this company is actually a spin off of Cambridge University of uh, Jeremy Burroughs, who who found in his PhD he discovered the electro emission of of uh, organic polymers of uh, conductive polymers and. Uh, he created this company based on his, of his PhD discovery, now this company grew to uh, to quite a large company and now we are part of a, of a large international corporation, Sumitomo Chemicals, so this is a, a very nice example of how to transfer the nanotechnology uh, discovery from academia to, to industry.
1: Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you to the panelists for joining us today, and the update the introduction. So, as you can see, we have a large diversity in the different fields that we have, uh, all somehow connected to nanoscience and technology. So, um, very quickly, um, I did my PhD in nanoscience and technology in National Taiwan University. Um, I was in academia for more than a decade, working in different countries, Taiwan, Japan, New Zealand. Um, partially with an industrial collaboration with Rocket Labs uh, down in Canterbury in New Zealand, before um, getting associated with different editorial work with uh, various publishing companies. Eventually got interested in artificial intelligence, and that's when an opportunity came along with Springer Nature. And uh, it's it's something that's interesting for a lot of uh, you who might be joining us in today's call, especially if you are PhD students at There are uh, many different types of opportunities in the publishing industry outside of editorial. So um, I actually work in uh, this small group called the Database Group that uh, works in aggregation of data and using artificial intelligence to find uh, different uh, kinds of uh, concepts around uh, nanomaterials. And uh, that's where we are with uh, uh, Nature Nano. So what we wanted to look at was uh, what are the key elements, so to speak, for successful university and industry commercialization collaborations. Because we often see that university technology transfer programs vary across institution types. So um, I'd like to hand this question over to uh, Dr. Seuss, who uh, might probably want to elaborate a little bit on different types of education, training, or support universities could offer to students, or even postdocs, or how are they engaging with different industry collaborations so
2: sure so i'll be kind of drawing on my own experiences here in particular i was lucky enough during my pa to have I mean, I had an incredible PI, uh, Professor Ivan Parkin at UCL Chemistry. Uh, So he's behind all the self-cleaning glass and everything. My particular research was based around photocatalysis as well, uh, particularly with a focus on water splitting, but also antimicrobial coatings that we can apply to things. So I did have uh, a small portion of my research um, actually patented by UCL during my time as a PhD student. So I'm kind of going to talk a little bit about the things that I and things that I've seen since then. And I think this engagement with your university's tech transfer team is really important. Most universities, if not all universities, do have a dedicated team that understand the process through which you need to go through to kind of go forward and potentially patent or commercialize any aspect of your work. Obviously, you know, most people on this call are probably experts in nanotechnology, and that's brilliant. You're not expected to be an expert in business as well. You're not expected to be an expert in the legal side of these things. And I think that's really important that engaging with your universities or your institution's um, actual kind of tech transfer team is great. Having the support of the people around you as well that you work with has been, at least for me, was a really good thing. I never thought that I would be patenting any of my work. I never thought I'd do a PhD, for goodness sake. So I never thought I'd end up as an inventor on a patent, but it was actually my PI that suggested that we go forward and do that. So I think speaking to people, making sure people are in the loop with the stuff that you're doing and being kind of open to these things is is very important. Um, I think we need to look at building confidence in researchers because again, I think a lot of people will go, well commercialization that's not the reason i went into this or it's not for me or i don't understand much about that world so i think Having greater awareness and engagement with some of the work that goes on within universities and within research institutions can be really important, even if it's just the sharing of case studies from a range of different people that have gone ahead and commercialized something or have had a successful industry collaboration, I think can really boost people's confidence and make them think, well, I can relate to that person, perhaps that's something that I could be doing. Another thing I think we don't really talk about enough is um, the kind of range of personalities and um, aspects of skill that different researchers have. If you look around at all of the biggest startups that we all know about, a lot of these people are incredibly creative thinkers. They think outside of the box. And I think sometimes in academia, we don't necessarily um, much attention to that or acknowledge that or even reward that kind of different way of thinking now i think particularly when we're talking about commercializing things and potentially creating a startup company from from an area of research that's looking promising we need to take into account the fact that we need to accommodate a range of different personalities and really foster creativity i think Um, one thing i was chatting to um professor kareem lakani from harvard business school for the research on research institute podcast um last month or the month before and he was a real advocate for competitions as being a really creative way of of setting challenges for people to come up with solutions to problems and i think that could be a really good way to kind of foster the, the university industry collaborations that might then become uh, a commercialized sort of entity and um, so collaboration is great um, i think one of the challenges and something that you need to be aware of is the fact that when you're working with industry um, researchers and industry partners are going to have very different expectations and outcomes. And I think sometimes if you go to um, industry with an idea, they may not necessarily be prepared to to invest in that or to fund that. I think often you need to be at a stage where you've got almost a proof of concept. Um, So that's something really interesting. I also, I have a really kind of privileged um, science communication life outside of what I do as well. So I um, recently covered the Cavley Prize for Nanoscience, which was awarded last week. And I chatted to Professor um, Maximilian Heider and Professor Knut Urban, two of the four winners of the million dollar prize for for nanoscience for their work on um, tweaking uh, nanomicroscopy effectively to make it even better. And they were saying that they really struggled to create industry collaborations because they didn't have this proof of concept. And so they had to get to that stage and then kind of really push for funding and this was back in the 90s so i think there is greater collaboration at the moment particularly between industry and university research but the fact that even they couldn't get um that backing or that funding from any kind of industrial partner really does make you think well you know it's not necessarily easy but i think we have a lot more in the way we support these days. Um, the last thing that I wanted to say is that in terms of I think something that is key to a successful research industry collaboration, particularly with universities, is the fact that you need to trust your experts, so not just the people in your tech transfer team, um, but also social scientists who have a real understanding of how products can be transferred into a commercialized entity um, in the uptake of those products and i think the other thing that is really important in terms of um, working with experts is finding good mentors as well so one of the things that digital science used to do as part of a catalyst grant was this strong sense of mentorship where you would have people that have been through this or have experience of taking something from the lab into industry and being honest about the challenges also talking about how they overcame them Um, so I think that's really important as well so a lot of I think a lot of this is awareness and support that's kind of my my two big take-homes
1: right and and, I think uh, when we were talking about uh, funding availability and we have a question from uh, Mohammed who is asking that what are the opportunities for say underdeveloped or developing countries to improve their socio-economic conditions via nanotechnology while they have a limit of budget for say research and development in their um, academic environment or even industrial environment. So is there something that you could add to that?
2: I guess one of the things um, in particular are some of these calls to funding to solve specific problems. I mean, we all know nanotechnology can be applied as a solution to so many different things from energy to environmental change to medicine. And I think sometimes maybe looking for those big there are so many out there and it's a case of finding them. I have to say, as awful as it sounds, the one thing, this pandemic, that I think has been a really encouraging thing is this sort of, its it's been such a catalyst for people just working remotely and collaboratively wherever they are. The fact, actually, I think a lot of people have we don't necessarily need to be traveling to do a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I know that in the Global South, one of the big challenges is the fact that, you know, if there's a limited amount of funding available, there's not the opportunity necessarily to go to all these big conferences or these calls for funding that are going on. And the fact that the research world has just got on with it is a great thing, because I think it means that one of those barriers is broken down. So we are able to kind of include more people in these discussions. Um, right. I'd also say for the Global that. For people in the Global South as well, there will always be um, societies and existing networks that will exist. We're doing some work with um, Research for Life, for example, about kind of access to, to research information. And I think they'd be good places to find other collaborators, other people that have maybe developed these ideas and have some other good contacts as well.
1: So that's that's great. I mean, uh, Michael Zemisla, is there something that uh, you feel that's happening in universities or from your own experience that you could draw on when it comes to these collaborations that uh, you think uh, acts differently? Like some fundings are prices. Let's right? say for solving the problem is is large, are small. Some
4: some are actually quite large. So you can start from small steps with. A, helping others solving problems, you are really creative you have a, you have a big knowledge and, and, and want to participate in these innovations. Uh, then if you have good portfolio of this, you can, you can make contact, you can make professional network and, and probably get much easier funding for in, the, in your future uh, individual ideas.
1: Right, and, and, and I think the general theme seems to be uh, funding. Uh, Michael, did you want to add anything to this? Funding is one thing, yes,
3: uh, but I'd say I, I'd go a step beyond and say, you know, where do you start? And I think if if the path were easy, so and there, this is where funding is at, you know, if there's a lot of funding opportunities, the step is easy, you know, but it's not. I mean, but but you feel un- unqualified. It's like what you said, Suze, uh, before that that you don't really dare because you have no idea where to start. And so I think helping people to understand just what are the first steps, you know, where how do I change my, my, my mindset into an entrepreneur mind, mindset, basically, and then kind of ramp up from there? Is It's something that is, everyone's is very good at, except in academia, you know, like I have friends that have founded their own companies they, they dare to do things. And I always think like, well, but aren't we the smart ones? How, do, how come we don't do this? You know, like, and I think it's, it comes with that, that, that essentially, if you want to do this, you have to do it on your own. And um, it, it takes a leap even to recognize probably the university is supporting you in this and you can just ask you know uh, as a first step but but i think very often you don't even recognize the potential you don't even understand what you have in hands or what this could lead to and then once you do you don't know where to go on from there you know it's it's so many steps in between i think that that really that really hinder this it's not the funding would make it all easier because you could just basically apply and then go on from there but i think even without the funding is possible, but we need to there. And, and I think that's the that's problem.
1: Right, and I, I think that kind of uh, leads us nicely into the next question, which uh, is, what are the challenges that we come across when it comes to uh, the transfer of knowledge from say university researchers to private sector? And, and more so, um, kind of uh, expanding on what all of you are talking about is I often get asked, um, if academics are uh, i mean all of us are very smart but uh, should we then go out and do these different courses perhaps uh, business courses to equip ourselves with the knowledge to um, uh, to start a new company or start a new initiative and so on or is it better for us to go and reach out to the business community where they have the expertise and collaborate with them um and and based on that i also have another question from the audience which is a very similar question are there any uh, popular, say hubs um, and or communities that could bridge this gap between university or industries. Um, so, uh, Michael, if you have any thoughts on that, um, um, the other panelists, yeah, feel free to jump in. And in, in terms of commercialization, I think it, it, in part that's it's more, at
3: least in my experience, more local thing. You know, in the sense that you know you have like legis- like legislations, your laws. So usually, you know, depending on where you're at, you have different opportunities for, for these sort of things. There, there definitely are, and you know, in Switzerland there definitely are these sort of things, even the universities sometimes have them or, or they have joint ventures with other universities to help you get there. Again, I think for me, the, the main challenge is if you want to have a transfer of knowledge is you need to ask yourself who transfers that knowledge. And I think mm-hmm. that's just, and in the end, that's what it all points down, the, the relationships you have is what is going to encourage you to take these steps. I think that's really what doesn't happen, right? If you, I noticed, I noticed this recently when I helped uh, someone prepare an application for, uh, you know, for for stepping into industry. And in the end, you know, you sit in an office and you prepare an application, uh, and at one point you ask, why Why do you even come to me? I don't really understand because I have not done this. I have no idea, right, about this. But in the end, um, we kind of we kind of try to work out what the industry wants from an academic perspective, but none of us actually have actively been exposed. I think that's that's a, a bit the problem in in all of this, and that, that how do you get um, how do they people to ask the right questions to the right people, and they can encourage and they can help. On you know this is this is something that takes time to develop, and in the end, I think you also need to consider that that when you go into academia, there's a reason for it, right? Most of us are a bit idealistic. Most most of us want to we want to do work that matters and it's a bit outside the box and it's risky and we don't know where this leads, and this is great, right? And then out, out of out of a sudden you should be able to form a product that is maybe you know compromises that, that 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 you know is maybe not exactly what you want but maybe what you can actually legally do you know and and bring to people and whatever it is it's, it's an entire change and, and in a way it's no surprise right that, that an academic mindset and an entrepreneur mindset you know they're, they're a bit different and and most i'd say most of the academics that stay on they stay on because of the mindset of the academia and that's hard in that mindset, it's very hard to, to create a product, even though I think we should. And, and coming back to you, yes, I think we should take courses. We, for instance, what we did this year, we have this young faculty meeting in Switzerland. That I helped organize this year, and we had exactly that. We had a kind of um, uh, it was uh, it was titled Beyond Beyond Research Components to Success, you know, and we invited people all the way from SciComm to, to to kind of um, people that that did exactly that, and, and we talked about entrepreneur mindset you know and and this initial spark to go on and do but very few are actually equipped to do that on their own i think so you need to meet people and i think that that was our approach a bit as well that we say well we need to bring them together so if you have something you at least know whom to ask i think at at the moment that's really that's really not not happening so much and i think to me the, the the key element for a successful kind of transfer that is that you get to know the right people. So that's you know, just before we started, we had this discussion right about an app that will bring these people together. It's, I think this is exactly the right approach, you know, a kind of a speed date app for for um for scientists or, or whatever. I think that's the point. And then it's the same point if you if you step outside academia into you know into the private sector in, in any anywhere, you know, not, not just necessarily to make a product, but just to get hired. I, I'm surprised how little people really know or are willing to inform themselves, you know. But you really spend the time um, having a couple of lunches with someone that works there and trying to to understand how this all works now we try to as we are trained as academics we, we're trying to kind of get you know make up our own mind as probably how it's going to work and then we're going to put that here to the test and then we wonder why this doesn't work but it's probably just because our information is a bit flawed so i think the first step there is really to to learn and to meet the right people that, that, that help you do that And I think that's a bit missing, at least for mine.
1: Right, and and, and just talking about steps, um, I have a question which is essentially talking about the different stages of the industry and academic collaboration where uh, Bob is asking, how realistic would it be uh, to have the industry involved at every step of the academic research? So, uh, and also do you think that it would be realistic that the research in university should essentially suit the demands of the industry?
3: Well, that's the question, right? I doubt that Marie Curie was doing commercialization when she started, you know, but turned now to be quite quite important later. I think I think universities, in my understanding at least, they, they're here for blue sky research. They they should go and beyond what is known and dare to do things essentially for the beauty of it, you know, because I think most of our discoveries are still still serendipitous. They're still, you know, we, we don't really know what we're gonna find. And I think that should be the point. Uh, the, and it's also, in my opinion, this is this is uh, there's a reason why the taxpayer pays this, you know, because probably there's nothing coming out of this. But sometimes it does, and it has a huge impact. That's just how it is. Um, but okay. but it's of course it's difficult to involve industry in something that should be independent of industry, right? And that that is paid by the public and so on and so forth.
1: I, I, it, I don't want to cut you up, but Zevus, uh, did, did you did, did you want to disagree to that?
3: I wanted. To, uh,
1: to, to
4: correct Mike, this something that's out of the blue or sky blue research. It's called fundamental research, and actually, on this fundamental research, the, a lot of of applicable applicable research and, and uh, research followed up by industries actually based on this fundamental research. So yeah. this yeah. is the very important role of, of academia in all this in all this development, society community, or this. Uh, scientific community and the uh, is rather doing a fundamental research to build up later on this
3: so uh, mm. it's, it's my it... So for that process to complete and, and bring these things you, you see that in OLEDs and something like that that have been around for years you know they finally make themselves into products of course but I still do think yeah. that there's immediate stage you know where we can actually even now bring things out directly into the market I think that is possible definitely you know there is there is a question of, of what chemists should be doing right now. Should we all tackle CO two and you know, like there, there's a question for, for these sort of things, of course. And then there should be space in room. But the problem is really that that traditionally these these boundaries are is, is blurred. And because it's blurred, it's unclear. And because it's unclear, it's uncertain. So you tend to stay in the extremes and, and you're not very comfortable in, in this mix where you say, like, well, maybe we could try to develop something, search collaboration. Have a PhD funded by by a company, you know these sort of things. These are these are tricky questions, of course. But I think is is also fertile ground for for new things. I, I do think so. So that people usually that that there, they they turn out to be quite successful in the end. I think. So, so
1: you had a point uh, to make on
2: this. I was I was literally just going to say that I think it very much depends on. We, we need both. We need this balance between the two. We need the academic researchers that have freedom, I think that's the bigger thing to explore. But then I think we have to understand that industry does play this huge role as well. I i remember when I went in to do a PhD rather than go into industry, which some of my friends were doing, and you know, they, earned more than I did when I was a PhD student, but they were doing effectively other people's work. Whereas I kind of decided to me, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to have the freedom to explore, to experiment, to try things out, obviously, you know, at a, a sort of lower premium. And that's fine. And I think it depends on the kind of person that you are and what you want to do. But I think they both need to kind of work Sort of symbiotically so that industry is ready to kind of go that's a good idea there let's see what we can do with that um the other kind of point i wanted to make since we were just talking about challenges to getting research and kind of commercialize things i think we need to look at um the kind of framework of research the research culture the way that we reward successful research. At the moment, all we do is look at, you know, sadly, I, I'm glad this is moving on, but we still do pay a lot of attention to papers, publications, citations, H-indexes. We were joking about it just earlier on. Um, and I think sometimes that is not um, necessarily in line with some of the, the ways that researchers would have to work if they were commercializing something. For example, when my um a small part of my phd was patented i wasn't able to publish anything about that work for two years because we have the six month kind of scoping out process we had the 18 month process of actually kind of cementing it down waiting having put it in there waiting for anyone to kind of dispute anything if your publications then take a hit for you know a year or two years or whatever but on some of this fundamental work that's kind of a problem if you want to be measured as a researcher on the same kind of metric as everyone else is being measured and i think maybe the research culture needs to be more accommodating to different ranges of research output because all of these things are still useful and we're still contributing to the kind of wider knowledge base but in different ways so i mean that's always it's the kind of constant uphill battle with the framework within which we work which is kind of why i left but you know anyway
1: (laughs) And talking about leaving, and I, th- I think that kind of transition us into the next question that we have uh, is uh, just creating jobs in the industry. And and, and before I pass it on to uh, zemislaw to kind of um, take the lead on this question, um, let me try and combine some of the questions that we are getting from the audiences related to this. Uh, and I'm sorry if I'm not able to get to all of your questions, there's a lot of them is uh, <laughs> in general when it comes to the job market um, and especially different industries because nanotechnology being such a multidisciplinary field, there are those who are working in agriculture that I can see um, uh, there's a question on how nanotechnologies are rallying around uh, COVID-19, uh, trying to find a vaccine. Are these all opportunities uh, say in the job market or um, yeah, if there's anything else that you would like to add to that or in from your own experience. Same so, stuff. Yeah, this is uh,
4: how to create more, uh, more jobs in industry, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big, big question. And uh, the simple answer could be industry creates as many jobs as, as they need, basically, in the research part. Mm-hmm. But to uh, change the, the economies to more innovative, now in the, in the time of a probably upcoming financial crisis, Governments could create uh, the the grants for for spin-off for startup companies for commercialization of of academic research to to, to create companies, like for example, the company that I'm working at, uh, which was supported by the by the Cambridge University spin-off funds. Uh, But the best, the most, the richest universities can afford helping. Helping uh, financially to spin-off companies, many many universities cannot. So, uh, if governments want to create, invest money somewhere, I think investing in uh, innovative research, spin-off startup companies is a, a is a very good way to to invest monies. People in academia should prepare themselves as well for for creating these jobs by themselves, or even getting the jobs in in uh, in industry itself, and uh, as Mike mentioned, the, there is a gap. There's lack of communication between industry and academia, and researchers from both teams. And even being on, on uh, last year, still on some scientific conferences, still being in academia, there's there's re- rarely some people from industry. There are few people for, for 800 people conference. There was maybe five people from industry. And on the industrial conference, there is very few people from academia, so there is little communication. As Mike said, there, there must be. It's good to reach out to people. There is now LinkedIn. There is social media. It's, it's it's quite easy to find uh, to find people from working in, in companies of interest, for example, and you can discuss with them. And uh, in, in in internet, you can find information about all the, most of the companies and, and reach to people there. Ask them what was their way. How they achieve that. I'm pretty sure many of them will be happy uh, to share this information, as long as you don't compete directly with them with your, with your uh, startup idea. Uh, so I think this is the good way to, to reach out, to discuss with people, to talk, to extend your network, and then you can create yourself these jobs in industry. You can create uh, your own spin-off startup company, you can uh, commercialize your ideas and uh, uh, there
1: this is my opinion yeah no I think I think that's an excellent point um, if, if I could just uh, spend a minute talking about um, how I landed a job in the industry was also um, just generally when you're doing a PhD degree when you're doing a postdoc um, you learn and equip yourself with a lot of different skills and all those skills are actually transferable to the industry you just need to know how to apply them um, I mean, you're you're editing papers anyways, you are proofreading them. That gives you a lot of uh, uh, interesting insights into how editorial works, uh, let's say, at the publishing industry. Um, And uh, when you're sending a paper out um, for review, for instance, uh, or for that matter, maybe reviewing something for your professor, supervisor, um, you could uh, see if you can reach out to the editors in a, a journal and perhaps ask if they might directly send you a paper for uh, reviewing for instance, uh, there's no harm even if you're a PhD student uh, at the very least uh, you manage to create a network you get to introduce yourself to the editor it might help you with your publication later on um, or for that matter there are many ambassador programs advisory positions uh, not just in publishing but in in other uh, peripheral industries related to your lab for instance uh, I know there was an internship with uh, King Wipes. Uh, that you quite often use uh, in the lab. So you just have to look and search for those positions. Um, Sometimes they're paid, sometimes they're unpaid. I would just uh, encourage you to look out for any positions that are available and try and get those skills and add them to your uh, CV. You never know where a network or a contact could land you in the future. Even if you do not get the position that you want immediately, always always stay in touch with the person that you've reached out to because if something opens up later on uh, they might uh, reach out to you first so so that's a, a really nice way uh, to stay in touch and look out for different opportunities um so yeah i think uh, if if the other panelists have uh, uh, if anything to add to that yeah Susan.
2: i am um, i really want to reinforce this point actually i think that within academia in particular we seem to think that there is one role and one way of contributing to this wider kind of research base and actually when you move to industry you start to realize all of the important roles that everybody plays in this so whether you are a a nanotechnologist that has skills in communications or pr or just the translation of information between a scientist and an engineer who will use the same jargon but have very different meanings for them you know these are all incredibly useful roles to play within there so there isn't just one way of contributing to research i i thought when i left academia that i was like right that's it all my contributions are done and then you step out and you realize that everybody is playing a small but really important part in this massive machine to get things done and um, so i think we need to maybe be better at showcasing just the range of careers that are out there um for, for all kinds of researchers, because you can use the skills and the knowledge that you have in such useful ways, particularly when kind of transferring a lot of this information from the lab out into the real world.
3: Mm -hmm. I'd say I'd even, you know, put it on its head, go the other way and say, well, why do we do internships into industry, but the industry never does internships with us? It's weird, isn't it? It seems to be that, you know, you kind of academia is this sinking boat. There's going to be one lifeboat or two that everyone else is going to have to swim somewhere else. But it's it's strange, isn't it? Because I think that that's the other point. And it brings me back to what I said before is if, if, if if transfer of knowledge is basically what I believe, you know, is associated with people, my people would benefit with someone with industry experience that works in our lab. Yeah, of course it is exactly, you know, it's, it's exactly that, that thing that, and we're missing we're missing this additional kind of you and that can be on what we do and you know that someone says well what you actually doing this is this is a problem for you know i don't know what it, whatever the industry is and say so like well they need these sort of things all the way to just you know just technical things like like yeah um, you actually have the skill sets to apply for these jobs so even even if it doesn't perfectly match it's fine because you know it, it's just a way of promoting yourself and so on but how are you going to learn that if, if you never get in touch? And, and and surprisingly, you know, if you think about the amount of stress that the PIs are under, that the PhD students, the master's students are under, there's not much room to do these sort of things. You know, so it could, it could go a bit more both ways, I, I think. And in an idealized sort of world, I'd say that that industry actually has an interest in in what we do as well. And, and you know, we have that kind of knowledge transfer back and forth. But it's also something I, I would tell to the publishers, you know, that, that you know, Get to know our, our people I and mean, they're people that are not just mm, production of, of of output and so on and i think these sort of things i think are important and we should we should make sure that, that this happens for us. Uh, mike isn't phd sort of an internship in academia
4: <laughs> most of the people in the industry uh, have some sort of academic background but uh, uh, i agree here uh, just, I, uh, I think it's important to also encourage people and uh, say from. I, I work in a in a heavily research-oriented company or part of the company now. And uh, what I was surprised at the beginning was how many skills that I that I got in academia are actually very very useful here and and desirable here in in in, in the industry and. Uh, doing your research in in the lab in, in university you can use most of these skills in uh, uh, in some job in industry if you, if you find job re- related to your PhD in, in industry is so broad that you can can find job related to your to your field but even if you move the field I, I had some of people who were, uh, changing completely their field, moving to industry, but they still could use a lot, a lot of knowledge and skills. Not only the soft skills, how to present nicely your research, but really knowledge, uh, scientific knowledge, and the uh, way how you how you how you create concepts, how you solve problems, analytical skills. These are these are very desirable skills in industry, actually. So, uh, yeah, we, I think Mike mentioned it before as well. People are when he was he was helping this person to prepare a CV for somebody or application to go to industry that they don't know what what industry expects. Uh, I think it's important also to be honest and uh, to put your to put all your skills you know, and then industry will will, will, will select you based on this, course. Uh, but don't be afraid, don't, don't think there's this uh, massive barrier you have to learn so many new things, you have to or do, do all these business schools to get job in industry. No, you uh, go apply, try to find your, your dream job and uh, even if you don't get one, second, third, fourth, uh, keep applying, keep keep trying and you'll find your dream job, I'm pretty sure. Uh,
1: and, and, and I think a, a good time to ask this question is that often when you are applying for these jobs, um, the industry tends to ask for some kind of work experience. So what do we do in in, in those cases uh, when PhD students do not have any industrial experience? How do they add that in their uh, CV? Do you have any thoughts on that?
4: I think if work experience PhD is a, a full-time job in most cases, especially in technology. It's a, you cannot do PhD in technology, uh, chemistry, uh, you know, bio, biotechnology or other technologies. Uh, not do PhD as a part-time job after your uh, other work. Uh, it's full-time job basically. So you can you can tell all your skills. I did this project. I solved this problem. I used this method. I learned this method to to solve this problem. So you you actually have after PhD you have a lot of a lot of work experience. So you just have right. to know how to sell it.
2: So I think a lot of it is really actually kind of signposting the skills you have in. The appropriate language sometimes. I mean, if you ask a PhD student if they have project management experience and most of them would go, no, I've just worked in a lab on my own. And actually, the reality is when you think about how many plates they have spinning at any one point or how productive they've been, of course, they have project management experience. It's just that nobody has actually flagged that up. In so many words, so I think sometimes maybe sitting down with somebody a bit more experienced, a mentor, or you know somebody that you trust, maybe even from a different field, that can help you identify the skills you do have is a really useful thing because you won't believe them, you know, or you won't feel that you have them. But but you know, PhD students are incredibly highly skilled, highly talented people with with a lot of you know ways they can apply those skills.
1: Right. And, and I think uh, uh, another question from the audience essentially, where do we go looking for these job opportunities? Do we go to traditional sites uh, where they host jobs or just um, ask our network?
4: I found actually a job for a colleague of mine, uh, back from academia, I found him job on Twitter. I saw on Twitter, one of the professors I'm I'm following tweeted, uh, yeah, I had this opening, I told my colleague and uh, he applied, he got the job, he's now doing uh, his postdoc in Australia and Melbourne. You can find uh, jobs in social media there are so many jobs online job, job related to uh, the websites uh if you want you will find just keep searching the, the job will not come down from you of course if you have nice network sometimes people will, will go and come and ask you yeah we have this opening maybe maybe you would like to apply uh but the, yeah, on LinkedIn, for example when you are in industry already then Maybe people start uh, connecting you. Uh, if you are going from academia, just keep searching, keep searching, keep uh, searching companies that you are interested in. Check at their website. All the companies put their jobs on their websites, and uh, yeah, this is how I found. Uh, I got the job here. I uh, CDT is the company I I was I, I really liked. I it was related to my research. I went on their website one day. They had job opening. I applied. I got the job. And,
3: uh, <laughs> uh, it might be as simple as that very quick note the other thing is you can create your job I think at least most of the big companies they do have opportunities available that they do not show you know so I think there is a bottleneck of of you know if you see a job opportunity uh, advertised on a website there's a lot of processes that have happened before so it's kind of like you know these are the the sort of the the best of the best candidate that, that are looking at internally have one for, for, you know, more, if you will, more money and more funding and so on. And so they, they they can open up a position. Of course, these positions are going to be highly sought after. My experience is that very often you just approach people that work and, and then all of a sudden you hear, well, there is actually an opening coming up, you know, in a couple of months that, that they don't really know how to fill it in yet. But yeah, why not? And, and, you know, all of a sudden you go from a setting where you compete against hundreds of people that you compete against no one. And that that goes through kind of you if you want to say your network and these things you can actually actively build on, you can approach people, maybe don't, you know, approach them and say, I, I need a job to say, like, I want to learn from you. I want to have a conversation with you. Can we have lunch? Can we, you know, I, I'd like to know. And then in that time, they will refer you to someone and someone and someone and eventually, all of a sudden, you're there, you know, so I think that's that's sort of my the complementary approach to, to actually competing because sometimes like you said, that you lack the work experience and so on, but if you get to explain what you know to someone face to face, you can convince them a lot better than on paper, I think. But that's just. Not-
2: I just wanted to add a tiny thing here, um, which I, I agree with everything you've, you've all said, and I think that's really important to go out there and be confident, However, sometimes this confidence can lead to a bit of an imbalance in the kind of people that are being employed, and a kind of then results in underrepresentation of other groups. So I think industry needs to play a role in this as well, in terms of approaching or reaching out to a, a range of different people to make sure that their workforce is pretty balanced. There's um, that kind of famous, I always forget the numbers, but if there's sort of 10 points on a job description and a kind of more confident group of people would kind of go okay well I can probably do three of those 10 things I'll give it a go whereas another group of people and this can be quite gendered a lot of the time um will say well I can't do all 10 of those things perfectly so I won't ever think of applying um I I think I'm pretty encouraged by the fact that people are doing more to reach a range of different people in their recruitment methods now um and I think you know we're talking about kind of technology transfer and startups and things. Digital Science recently um, invested in a previous Catalyst grant winner called Seismic who are actually working to make the recruitment process less biased um, by kind of identifying skills and blocking a lot of the kind of um, characteristics that might uh, affect the chances of getting employed and things. So I think, you know, we, have to play a part in being more confident and kind of playing this role of approaching people and, and doing that and really actively going out and searching for these roles but I do think industry has a big part to play in this as well to make sure that we still have good representation and balance in the workforce that we're creating. We've had a
1: really really nice panel discussion and uh, we're running out of time so I'm going to give you the tough job of uh, giving you 30 seconds to essentially answer or give one piece of advice to our audience today as to how they could go and commercialize their research or land on their dream jobs. So it could be anything, or maybe choose to ignore my question and give your own closing remarks for 30 seconds. So um, why don't we start with uh, uh, Dr. Zemislav, please stand uh, I think
4: be confident, believe in your research, believe in your skills, believe if you want to commercialize your research, believe in it, uh, try to solve big problems. Uh, nobody would like to invest in company that solves a small, tiny problem. Try to solve big problems. There are market uh, uh, analysis uh, reports, uh, see what what is the important problem to solve in the future. See it, solve big problem. Or uh, if you want to just get a job in industry, believe in yourself, search what you love and, uh, and uh, keep
3: following your dreams. Believe in yourself. Michael? And to me, you understand that everything you do is related to people. So people get met, met by people, both of these things, you know, um, and and just, you know, to share, just talk, don't necessarily do it, you know, start at a point where you don't need anything yet. I think that's my point. Start doing that when you're very comfortable, when you're passionate about your research or whatever it is you do and, and meet and, and build build on that because i think eventually this is a long time process and like you say you don't you don't always have the confidence but right usually if you're passionate then you you get to share eventually and Excellent. i think that, that will always ignite all right very I mean, you know. passion,
1: networks
2: yeah we've had confidence we've had mentoring actually my take home is probably going to be try it and don't be afraid to fail in research we don't call it failure we call it iterative success Um, At each stage, you know, we're we're making teeny tiny failures in order to make something better. In something like this, just don't be afraid to try it. You have nothing to lose. What is the worst that can happen? Don't be afraid to fail. Some of, you know, the the most incredible startups and and companies out there have failed and have learned from those failures and have turned them into successes. Um, And I think we need to embrace that a bit more we ran a failure campaign last and you know just hearing people talk about it's great to fail but nobody really admitting to it was really interesting so be open about your failures as well and share with people how you've overcome them yeah
1: excellent so belief passion network and it's okay to fail and uh, i would just say one word entropy is good when it comes to research some (laughs) amount of chaos is uh, essential So uh, with that, uh, I'd like to thank the audience for uh, joining this panel discussion. I'll hand hand it over to Nina now, uh, who is going to briefly explain uh, our two um, amazing products, uh, Nano and Research App.
0: Hi, everyone, and uh, just a huge thank you to the panelists. I think that was a great discussion. Um, So this panel discussion was hosted by the teams behind Nano, um, the strategic and commercial evaluation tool for nanoscience and technology research brought to you by Springer Nature and by Researcher. Researcher's mission is to become one of the world's leading discovery platforms for scientists and researchers. Academics can follow over 16,000 sources of scholarly content, including all spring and nature journals to stay up to date. The app is free to download and use on iOS, Android and as a website. Thank you all for joining the session today. We hope you found it useful and we look forward to welcoming you tomorrow in the future. Have a lovely day.